Fortnite in Film is a podcast where every week you get the chance to listen in on a group of film lovers chatting about the great, or not so great, movies that we've been watching over the past fortnight. Hello, and welcome to episode one of A Fortnight in Film. I'm your host, Jason. And I'm your co-host, George. Thanks for tuning in. As this is the first episode, I'll just take a few minutes to explain how everything works, and then we can jump into introductions and start discussing some films. A Fortnight in Film gives you discussion, analysis, debate, and banter about the films we've been watching over the past two weeks and beyond. The way it works is we'll be discussing the best and worst films we've seen over the past fortnight, and from there we're going to talk about film more generally, often tied into what we've watched recently. It might be topics we've planned out ahead of time, or thoughts that come to us in a moment, but essentially you get a chance to listen in on a fun, casual, and lively conversation between a couple of film lovers. One week, George will be my co-host, and the other week, Christian will be my co-host you'll all get a chance to meet next week. So the podcast will go out weekly, but we'll have two separate co-hosts who appear every fortnight, hence one of the reasons why we're called A Fortnight in Film. We're also looking at possibly getting some guests on the podcast in the future, so watch for space. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much any of the major podcast directories, and if we're not there yet, we will be shortly. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook at A Fortnight in Film, and on Twitter, at Two Weeks in Film. That's two spelled out, T-W-L. Finally, for some context, the three of us connected through an app and website called Letterboxd, which is a social network for film discussion and discovery, which has been described as like Goodreads for movies. If you're not on Letterboxd, I definitely encourage you to check it out. I know for myself, I've become pretty obsessed with it since I started using it this year. I'll try and include links to our Letterboxd profiles in the description of the podcast, so you can check us out on there and see the full scope of what we've been watching. With all that said, let's kick it off with some introductions. I'm Jason, I'm 27, and I live in Sydney in Australia. And I'm George, I am 24, and I live in Camberley in the south of England. So I thought we'd do something a bit fun to start, so you can get a sense of what our taste in films are, at a high level at least. We're going to share with you our favourite film, our two favourite franchises, our three favourite directors, our four favourite genres, and our five favourite actors. My favourite film is Training Day, with Denzel Washington and Ethan Hawke. My two favourite film franchises are Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. My three favourite directors are Clint Eastwood, Martin Scorsese, and Stanley Kubrick. My four favourite genres are drama, thriller, crime, and sci-fi. And my five favourite actors are Tom Hanks, Robert De Niro, Brad Pitt, Will Smith, and Al Pacino. Okay, so my favourite film, I I don't really have a favourite film as such. I try not to limit myself to one. Um, it would probably be a toss-up between Casablanca and Cinema Paradiso. But again, I think I, my my you know tastes are constantly evolving, so you know I'm not going to limit myself. <laughs> my two favourite franchises are Star Wars and the Spider-Man um, Raimi, uh, like the Raimi-verse. Three favourite directors... Dario Argento, The Archers, so we're a pair of British directors, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, 
and Martin Scorsese. My four favourite genres is um, horror, drama, action-adventure, and sci-fi. Again, I'll pretty much watch anything. I'm, I'm quite open. Uh, my five favourite actors are Charlie Chaplin, Tom Hanks, Mads Mikkelsen, Humphrey Bogart, and Olivia de Havilland. So before we get into talking about the films, I want to provide a warning to all of our listeners. Any discussion from this point on will contain spoilers. What I'm going to do is in the description of every episode, I'll list out the films we talk about. Uh, what I'll also do, dependent on how much text we can put in the description, is try and put timestamps next to the film so you can skip ahead and not have a movie spoiled if you really want to watch it but you haven't seen it yet. Let's begin with the best film we've seen over the past two weeks. The best film I've seen over the past fortnight is Some Like It Hot. 1959, Marilyn Monroe uh, was the star, along with Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon. It was actually a rewatch for me, because I have seen it many years ago. For me, it's just like, it's amazing. You think it's been, what, over 60 years since that film came out? But it still holds up. Like, it's still funny. And it's hard to find, in my opinion, like, films nowadays that are funny let alone stuff from the 1950s because it's just it's just a different style of film and a different sense of humor and different sensibilities of the audience i guess i definitely prefer some comedy films from that era uh, they're they're just brilliant biddy wilder is just it's just a great director i've been watching some of his films recently like um um double indemnity sunset boulevard and the, yeah they're, they're brilliant so I'm not surprised that Some Like It Hot is great as well. What else is it about Some Like It Hot? Like, what, what makes it, you know? One of my major problems when I'm watching films is um, my inability to suspend my disbelief. And what that means for people out there is you're watching something and you know it might not particularly happen in real life, but you sort of toss logic out the window for the sake of enjoying the film or the book or whatever. I very much struggle to do that, which <laughs> means I can't enjoy some films as much as I would probably like because I'm constantly looking at it like, oh, that would never happen in real life. That's ridiculous. That's not even possible. Um, <laughs> but I think some like it hot sort of transcends that in a sense. Like I think it's so charming as a comedy and it's just so authentically funny that you sort of overlook the fact that you know, how realistic is it that these two uh, orchestra players, two musicians, witness a mob hit and then have to dress as women and join a, a female band and go down to Florida, right? It sounds silly when you describe it like that, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you've just got to give yourself... You've just got to give yourself into it, right? You've just got to go with the flow. It's so funny that you just overlook all that. You're like, it's a funny movie. I think the levels of humour in it, yes, there's obvious humour derived from, oh, these two guys are trying to pass themselves off as women, and obviously the comedy that ensues from that, but even other things like uh, Tony Curtis switches between being this woman, and then he he goes and beats this man as well at the same time to try and woo Marilyn Monroe's character. Right, yeah, yeah. The script, I mean, the script is so funny. Yeah, as I said before, like his scripts, his scripts are just amazing. What about you? What was your 
best film over the past two weeks? My one is Psycho, which a lot of the listeners would know due to you know, the fame of Norman Bates, um, the shower scene. I bought a Hitchcock um, box set and I was working my way through his filmography. And, you know, I, I had totally forgotten how good Psycho actually is. Um, for me, it's probably his best film with Vertigo. Vertigo is probably second for me. But Psycho, it's just it's just a perfect film. You know, there's there's three clear acts. You have um, Marion Crane, who's the main sort of the leading lady played by Janet Leigh. Um, she basically steals some money to give to her boyfriend so they can get married. And she she runs away with this money. This is this is a long story short, but she comes across this motel where she has to stay, run by Norman Bates, who lives alone with his mother. It turns out, obviously, his his mother is dead. He's he's killed her a long time ago, and um, he's so Norman Bates. He's so guilty about this that he just you know he has a breakdown. He he pretends to be his mother. As you do, you know. I mean, it, it happens. It happens, yeah. So he keeps her in the fruit basement. Um, <laughs> he dresses in her clothes. He he does her voice. Um, and Janet Leigh, who plays Marion, when she arrives at the hotel, it's sort of the catalyst for um, a murder to take place of Marion because Mother, in Norman's head, doesn't like the fact that there's another woman in town. So, so essentially kills her. The famous shower scene, it's just brilliant. It's just brilliant. You know, it happens about an hour in and you're not expecting the lead to be killed off. But Hitchcock kills her off anyway. And um, audiences in the you know, in 1960 would have been shocked. How much longer, as someone who hasn't seen it, how much longer does the film go on after she's killed? It's a good, It's a good hour and a bit. I yeah. think it's about an hour. That's a pretty brave decision to like kill off the lead an hour in and then have another hour plus film confident that your actor, your character, your story will still keep audiences interest even though the lead character's gone. Yes, and it works because you're so invested in her character that when she is killed, you're like, what's going to happen next? And then the focus shifts to Norman. He becomes the protagonist of sorts and even though you know he's kind of a bit crazy at this point you sympathize with him i was reading some sort of um behind the scenes stuff about it and hitchcock actually said he filmed the whole film in black and white because it was too gory for the he thought it was too gory for the time and he didn't want to shock audiences too much with um um with the use of color it it really shows that the way he edits it the way he films it you know um, he wanted it to be shocking. Yeah, I guess slasher films weren't really a thing for like 10, 15 years later. No, exactly. Yeah, it really set the benchmark for that. Speaking about that shower scene, I think said I've even though I haven't seen the movie, I've seen the scene, as I'm sure most people have. I think it's a testament to, which I think is often overlooked, and maybe the average film watch or someone who just watches movies casually i think they don't get how important the score is sometimes and i think like that shower scene is a perfect example would that scene be as iconic if it didn't have that music i don't think so exactly yeah well it, it's all the aspects as you say it's the music um 
it's like the quick cuts. It's like yeah, it's like the editing. Um, you know, it, it it ends with a shot of um, um, Janet Leigh like lying on the floor, and it zooms in on her eye, and you see the blood going down the sink. Janet Leigh, she she loved she loved the aspect that it's that you know she she was approached because she was a pretty famous she was a pretty famous actress, and she was approached to you know die halfway through the film, and another actress may have been like like no I don't want to do that, but she loved it so much she she said yes. Was Psycho because I admittedly shamefully I don't think I've ever seen a Hitchcock movie. Even though, like, pretty much every movie he's ever made is on my watch list, um, was Psycho like where was it at in his career? Because I'm thinking like he would have to be pretty established, I'm guessing, to get a major actress like Janet Lee to say yes to being killed off. My Hitchcock history isn't you know perfect. I know he did a lot of British films because obviously he's he's English. He did a lot of British films in the 30s and 40s. Then he moved to Hollywood in the 50s he had this sort of golden run from sort of the mid 50s to the mid 60s where he made a lot of his classics and psycho was kind of in the middle of that so the rest of the film after the murder you know it sort of yeah focuses on norman and then it focuses on the investigation into where marion is the ending the ending is just brilliant um there's a sort of yeah i, I won't spoil it as as such but there's a sort of merging of norman and his mother, his like the mother side to his brain, they sort of you know merge together. A boy's best friend is his mother, isn't that what he says? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but what's crazy is that like obviously Norman is evil, like you know he commits this these murders, but you kind of sympathise the film, and also it's down to Anthony Perkins who plays Norman. He's such a good actor. You sort of sympathise. You sort of sympathise with him. You know, there, there was actually debate about casting someone sort of so young as Norman, because in the book, Norman was middle-aged and Hitchcock changed it to a young man. So some people were saying, oh, you can't have like a young guy. Is that maybe Is the audience maybe too sympathetic to him? Um, but I think it, but it kind of, yeah, it obviously worked out in the end. If you talk to anybody who's into film, I would be very surprised if they could pick out a bad Hitchcock or Billy Wilder film. That's true, that's true. I mean, Hitchcock, he did make some bad films, but in relation to every other director, they're still pretty good, I think. <laughs> you know? He did tail off. I still, I've yet to watch his last four films in the box set, but um, he definitely tails off a bit. But, you know, I've seen a lot of reviews on Letterboxd. Even some of the mid-tier efforts you know, are still quite good. Okay, moving on to the worst films we've watched over the past few weeks. Um, there are a few contenders I could have picked because I feel like I've watched a lot of bad films lately or maybe I'm just too harsh and give out poor ratings. But I'm going with a 1998 film starring Bruce Willis called Mercury Rising. I don't even know where to start. I mean... So the the plot is the NSA put this super secret code in a puzzle book because their theory was, oh, well, nobody's ever going to be able to to crack it if it's in a puzzle book. Lo and behold, 
it's cracked by a nine-year-old autistic boy. So obviously the, the only solution is to send assassins to kill the boy and his parents um, for daring to crack this code. Like even that in and of itself is just stupid. The NSA doesn't put secret codes in puzzle books. They don't send assassins after you if you crack said code. And, and the other thing too is we're never told what this code is for. I think we're given some briefing about Ronald Reagan and the Russians, and that's about as much explanation as we're given. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> for context, Bruce Willis plays an FBI agent um, who sort of um, takes custody of a kid, I guess. And then the ending, sort of spoiler for everyone, to put you out of your misery so no one has to actually watch this film. Um, Bruce Willis's character is on a rooftop with Alec Baldwin, uh, who is the uh, this shadowy NSA guy who was behind all the killings. He has sort of a guy there um, with a, a you know machine gun or whatever, and uh, the FBI sends in their guys with machine guns, and there's a helicopter there waiting to take Alec Baldwin and this boy, so they can yeah they can get rid of him. And uh, Alec Baldwin's uh, I guess right hand man or whatever gets killed. I don't even know how he gets killed. Like the helicopter is like, I don't know if it's taking off or landing. And I guess like the force of the helicopter like blows all the windows in, like all the glass panes and like, you know, it's just like slow-mo shot and all the glass is going to this guy's face. I mean, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> and then Alec Baldwin is on the edge of a rooftop and him and, uh, him and, him and Bruce Willis are fighting. And this boy who, which I'll get to him in a sec, because there's serious problems with that. The boy fortuitously hands Bruce Willis's character the gun at the pivotal moment, and Bruce Willis shoots Alec Baldwin's character off a rooftop, and he falls a hundred stories through this glass. Thing. I mean, he, just... you see, I guess you've seen that move, you know, a million times. That trope where you know the character suddenly gets the gun or or the weapon to you know, save himself. And so the boy, I mean, I was reading some reviews on Letterboxd um, to see if anybody else thought this film was as awful as I did. Um, and a lot of the people rightly called out that, and I, it's funny, so people talk about film as being dated and I never really got what that meant. Like, I, I, like, I knew what it meant, obviously, but I never really experienced it because a lot of films, I'm just like, oh yeah, the product of a time or whatever. But I think this was probably the first film that I've watched that I can remember where I came out of it like, yeah, that was dated because its portrayal of this autistic boy was just so out of touch and offensive. Where What year was it again? 1998. 1998, okay, right, okay, yeah. I guess autism wasn't as well known as it is today. That's the case with a lot of films i guess in terms of attitudes and um sort of especially well when it comes to technical stuff as well like the effects can obviously seem dated um but i guess yeah that's a problem a lot of films do do run into i guess you've got some of them just take them with the context of the time um but you know yeah i definitely see where you're coming from with this one was this for bruce willis was it before or after die hard like what? Like why did he do? Was it meant to be a like? Was it going to be a success? This film or? Good question. Let me look. It was actually ten years 
after Die Hard. So Die Hard was, yeah, 1988, the first one, and then yeah, this was 10 years after. So he was sort of an established star at this point. Like, he did The Sixth Sense in 1999, which I also don't like. Um, <laughs> and he did, like, The Fifth Element a year before in 1997. Oh, I, lo- I like The Fifth Element. I like that a lot. I haven't actually seen it. It's on my list. Yeah. So, so yeah, he was, yeah, he was, he didn't need to take this role, I guess, is the point. Um, mm-hmm. But, I mean, I guess it didn't harm his reputation. No, you yeah. know, I, just, I I haven't heard of it, so you know, it didn't yeah. really drag him down. But. <laughs> just harmed his reputation in my esteemed eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that yeah in your in your estimation? He's down. <laughs> what about you? What was your worst pick? My one was Brazil from 1985, um, directed by Terry Gilliam. I think has quite a big fan base. He was from um, Monty Python, so a lot of comedy is. Oh yes, I didn't realize that was the same person. Really. Yes, um, so he he's done a lot of films I like. Um, he did um, Twelve Monkeys, which is a a, a sci-fi from mm, Brad Pitt, right. Brad Pitt, and and Bruce yeah. Willis, and Bruce Willis. Um, oh, so that was good. But this one, I don't know. It's sort of it's set in a dystopian future where sort of the state controls everything um but all the technology is like broken so all the computers don't work like nothing works in terms of technology in the world and in order to do something anything you have to fill out like a million forms and it's kind of a satire on this on sort of state control bureaucracy that sort of thing so i got it i got the message in that sense but the plot to me, it was just so it was dull. After half an hour, after about an hour, and it's it's quite a long film. After an hour, I was like, I get the message, you know, it's it's a satire on bureaucracy. I don't really care now about these characters. Um, it it had a really good start, you know, it did draw me in, but it's basically the plot is um Jonathan Price from um Game of Thrones, the High Sparrow, <laughs> um. He he is playing a guy. He works in this department where they have like they like identify mistakes in the system and things. And he basically has to rectify this wrongful arrest that's been made. And because the sort of state never makes mistakes, it's some, like a massive thing. And he has to go and rectify it. At the same time, he's having dreams about this woman that he he keeps on seeing her in his dreams. And then he sees this woman in real life in his sort of workplace. Oh, what a surprise. I didn't see that coming at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so she is also on the case of this guy who's been wrongfully arrested because she lives in the apartment above him. So their plot lines sort of converge. But uh, sort of uh, the motivations of the characters just didn't really make any sense like the plot just didn't make sense to me um he eventually finds her they they sort of meet and she hates him she hates him initially she like tries to get in her truck and she drives off and she's trying to kick him off or whatever and then after one fight he's like trust me and then she takes him in and it's totally fine but there's no explanation as to why she changes her mind it's so sudden um it kind of took me out of the like immersion a bit and then I didn't really understand the ending. I don't know. Maybe other people did, which is absolutely fine. I would love to be explained the ending. Um, <laughs> but you know, yeah, I I totally get why some people like it. The like the world is great, and 
you know, um, I can see why some people love the plot and the characters, but it just it just wasn't for me. I think what I've found with a lot of sci-fi films I've watched recently is it can be very visually appealing, but if if the plot isn't there or the characters aren't there, like it makes it a hard watch. Like you can have a world that is either looks good or is interesting, like it's an interesting concept, but if it's not executed correctly or if the story just doesn't work, it's sort of like you don't really have a reason to keep watching. That's exactly it for me. Like the concept was good. Uh, the, the the environment and the sets were, were re- really brilliant. Um, but yeah, the execution just did not engage me. Um, and I think some parts were meant to be funny. I couldn't really find the comedy in it. I, I would much prefer just watch some Monty Python. Um, and actually, Robert De Niro turns up for three for three scenes, and they are the best three scenes in the whole film for me. So <laughs> ten minutes of the film, I liked watching Robert De Niro. Um, so the first thirty minutes and the three scenes with Robert De Niro were good. Uh, the rest had good parts, but didn't engage me. So overall, I didn't hate it. Like, I didn't hate it, but I wouldn't watch it again. And I wouldn't, you know, go to people and say, oh, you must watch Brazil. Um, if you're a fan of Terry Gilliam, you'll, you know, you'll love it. Um, Actually, on on that note, because you just got me thinking that um, we give out... Uh, very different ratings sometimes. I'm very harsh with <laughs> quite a number of films. But in saying that, if you look at my ratings on Letterboxd, they actually trend upwards. Funnily Because I, I feel like even I'm harsh when I give out ratings. I'm like, oh, was it really that bad? But if you look at my ratings, like most of them are, I think, three and a half, four and five stars are my most common ratings. But I do, I do give out some pretty harsh. <laughs> I think the thing for me, the reason my ratings, they more upwards than downwards. I think mm. it's because I tend to pick films that I think are like, and for and for for the most part, I'm right. So if I you know if I order something or I watch something on streaming, I think to myself, "Am I going to like that?" I'm not going to stay inside a bubble. I will watch films that are out my comfort zone. But you know, for for the most part, you know, yeah, if, if I think I like it, I will watch it. And I guess that's where I differ because I'd say 75%, if not more, of what I watch is off the TV. So I'm sort of at the mercy of the programmers in terms of if they put something good or not on. You see, I'm the opposite. I never watch films on TV. You know, if, if there's a film on like BBC Two or something, I may I may stick it on. But that's quite rare. Um, so, yeah. So on that note, I picked out a few films. So there's three films which we've given very different ratings to, and there's three films which we've given uh, very similar ratings to. This will be interesting, yeah. We'll start off with the, the different ratings first, and actually two of these I watched um, fairly recently. I feel like within the past couple of weeks or the past month or so. So Children of Men, regarded as a... Well, I feel like all the films I'm going to say are like regarded as classic films. Yeah, it's... Well, it, Children of Men is... It's probably regarded, yeah, as as a modern sci-fi classic. I gave it two stars. I know I gave it four and a half. 
yeah, I was quite harsh. So <laughs> would you like me to state my case first or do you want to state, state your case and then I will give a rebuttal? <laughs> <laughs> so again, I like I mentioned before, I it's like a lot of sci-fi films I've watched lately. I like the concept. Okay, it's a lot of what sci-fi films deal with in terms of story. It intrigues me, like it's intriguing plot wise. So I thought the plot was interesting, but it just Parts of it just seemed. What did it yeah, drag it, for you? Yeah, I mean, parts of it just seemed unrealistic to me. Um, parts of it, you know, it, it didn't really drag. It, it wasn't all that long mm. in terms of time, um, but it was more. It was, I guess, it dragged in terms of action. Like it was just sort of. I, I felt mm. it was sort of slow, somewhat. Yeah, although I don't think it was meant to be, you know, uh, all out action. Yes, no, flick. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I kind of get you. I mean, for me, I just love the atmosphere that it that it created, and I love it was more the technical level. Like there were multiple long shots, like long takes that Quaron used, which were actually absolutely brilliant to me. Uh, so on a technical level, I loved it more than the plot. I guess um, I thought the plot was passable. I thought it was good, but for me, it was you know. I do, I was just admiring, you know, the, sort of the technical prowess. Um, yeah, I mean, it it was a well shot film. I'll give I'll give it that. I guess just yeah, for me, but just I didn't. It didn't really said it wasn't it wasn't an awful film, but it just yeah, it didn't. I didn't enjoy it as much as I thought I would because I knew how highly acclaimed it was, and I like Clive Owen. I've seen him in other stuff. I think he's good. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Okay. Maybe we'll go. We'll go on to uh, the thing. Nineteen eighty-two. Oh, the thing! Ooh. I gave it three stars. So it wasn't bad. It was. It was average. Okay. Okay. So so you liked it. You liked it. Yeah. It was. Yeah. It was all right. Um. But again, I know it's regarded as like you know this masterpiece of horror, and everyone goes on about it. And John Carpenter and I. I. I have a friend who is you know who loves it. So. He he'd have a bone to pick with you, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I gave it four and a half. I think it's great. I think the effects, I, th- I think the effects just brilliant. Uh, I I love practical effects in horror, um, so I I love that aspect, and the whole you know the, the whole idea that they're contained with this you know thing that's hunting them, and you know you don't know who it is, you don't know what's happening to them. Yeah, I will say that. Again, the plot very much intrigued me. I thought the plot was good in in that sense of you didn't know who it was, right? And you were sort of you as an audience felt as tense as they would have there because they've got like how many people were there at the base? Five, six, seven, something yeah, like I think that. It was seven or eight or something. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, you don't know yeah. who is real, who's the thing. And I think the I don't believe I wrote a review um, for it because I rarely write reviews. Um, but I do remember thinking that the setting of, of having it set in Antarctica definitely helped. There's an interesting parallel. Have you seen the film Invasion of the Body Snatchers? I haven't, but it's on my list. Because that's a sort of parallel, a sort of a difference in the sense that um, it's sort of like an alien being that comes to earth and it starts to imit it starts to like kill people and replace them so the person you see on the street may have been killed and it's an alien 
in their place. Um, but it's sort of opposite to the thing in that it's spreading across the city um, and it's sort of building up the sort of tension that way. But you should definitely watch watch that as well. So finally, the film we gave very different ratings to was I watched, it was only quite recently, the 27th of August. What was that? Around a week ago or so. I watched Goodwill Hunting. Uh, finally, it's been on my watch list for the longest time. And I didn't like it at all. I gave it one star, which I'm sure some people out there will be very saddened to hear. But um... <laughs> I mean, I I haven't watched it in you know, six or seven years, so I need to watch it again. I liked it at the time. Um, I liked Robin Williams' performance a lot. I know that. Yes. I, I Yeah, him I will give credit. I thought he was good in it. I know you didn't like the fact that sort of it's the story of the janitor kind of unrealistically being a maths genius. Yeah, it was just, I just found it, uh, it was just so contrived. I mean, this thing of, oh, there's this, this, it's not a boy, he's 20, 21 years old, mm-hmm. this young man from South Boston, you know, and he's working in this menial job. Oh, but he just happens to be this, this maths genius. And he goes, you know, he goes there at nighttime and solves these impossible equations then it gets better because then we get, you know, we get Robin Williams coming. Oh, and he's also from Southie and, you know, he's Irish and, and you know, they bond over that. And, and then, of course, the ending. I'm, I've realised what I have to do now. I'm going to be a maths genius. Like, give me a break. I'll, I'll watch it again. I'll watch it again. And then I can offer, offer an argument back. But, yeah, I'll, I'll do that next week. And then maybe on a couple of weeks we can talk about it. <laughs> And just a side note, can Matt Damon and Ben Affleck stop playing Irish people from South Boston, please? Like, can we get a new... I'm go- To be fair, there's a film coming out called um, The Last Jewel, set in medieval France, and they're in that together. So that's, you know, that's that's the difference. Oh, well, there you go. They've, they've, they heard me. They're listening to me. They, they, yeah, they answered your call. But moving on to more positive things, there's a few films we both love, so I'll kick it off with... I guess the most recent film, which is Gran Torino. Yeah, I mean, I I really like Gran Torino. I I'm a big fan of Clint Eastwood. I thought the story was great, the performances were great. I thought I I really liked the ending. The ending sort of wrapped everything up really nicely. Yeah, and I think that's what I liked about it is it felt realistic. You could read about something like that happening in the paper, and it would be fully believable. Yeah, because Clint Eastwood's character, he he had experiences. I forget which war it was. Was it was it Vietnam? Uh, I think it was Korean War. Or was it Korea? Yeah. Korean War. So he had experiences which, you know, shaped his his character, um, and he you know he his he grows as a character through through the whole film. So I've only actually seen a handful of Clint Eastwood films. So I've seen Gran Torino. Obviously, Gran Torino was two thousand eight. I've seen a couple of eighties films he's been in. I've seen uh, Heartbreak Ridge. 1986 and Honky Tonk Man 1982. I like both of them, but I think like you look at Clint Eastwood. Most actors, as they age, like they have their heyday right when they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever, and then they sort of get older and they sort of lose it and they're like you know just doing bit parts or doing cameos or whatever. Like I'm pretty sure he still acts. He does. He's got a film coming out soon, um, and he's 91, so he's soldiering on. He's soldiering on. He's not exactly. He blows me. He's ninety-one. Yeah, <laughs> like he hasn't dropped off. I wouldn't say. 
um, whether it's acting or directing. I know he like, did, a, I think, The Mule a couple of years back. That that was a success. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. We'll take it really old school for our next film, which is Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind. Yes. Yeah, I loved Gone with the Wind. I don't... I, I probably need a good 20 minutes to properly talk about it. I Yeah, I just loved, you know, I just loved the epic scale, um, the use of Technicolor. Um, I know it, I know it's controversial, but, you know, what I will say, it was a product of its time. And you, you, you just got to take it how it is. But, yeah, like the, the plot, it's just so grand and epic. Vivian Leigh is just, you know, amazing. Um, Olivia de Havilland is, is great. There are just so many quotable lines as well. We're talking of quotable lines. I believe that, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, is voted as the best movie quote ever by by the American Film Institute. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I that makes sense to me. I mean, you know, it's the ultimate the ultimate rejection. Just you know, get out. <laughs> no, everything you said, I would agree. With. I mean, I think yeah, the color scale like it's a long film like it's what uh, two well 221 minutes no i think three it's like three hours 58 or something like that it's long i remember when i watched it it didn't feel long like you know, some films drag and you sort of get to like the hour mark you're like oh god how much longer do i have to sit through this but that never it to me it never felt long because I mean it was long, but it, it never dragged. Like it never because you, you were invested in you were invested in the story, and it's obviously this like I said, an epic told across so many years and covering so much time. You know, I think it's the end of the first you know half when um Vivian Leigh Scarlet she's sort of down on her luck at her farm. So she's like screaming to the heavens, you know, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give in. The music swells, and then you know, end of the first half. Yeah, it's just it's just magnificent. They don't make films like we used to. They don't. It's a, it's a cliche quote, but it's true. But it's true. I'll pick up on that point of the controversy. I think this is a classic case to me of, like, you have to assess when it was made. People have look at it now and go, oh, there's so many problems. It's like, well, it was made in 1939, first of all. And... It's set in the 1800s. Like, it's set in before the Civil War and then it's the Reconstruction. Like, yes, of course, slavery isn't going to be, you know. Yeah, you you can't make a Civil War film without including the topic of slavery. So I think, you know, it's pointless to cancel a film that's set, that's one, made in 1939, and two, set in the Civil War. Um, you can. I think what a lot of companies are doing is putting a disclaimer at the start, saying this contains blah blah blah, which is fine. But you know, I disagree with all the censorship arguments and cutting scenes. Like you've got, you've got to, you've got to leave it in. You know, um, purely to recognise the historical context. You know, that's my view. Couldn't couldn't have said it better. The final film, and actually, I'll give a bit of a sneak peek to something to be on next week's episode um so i'll be discussing with christian um what we think is the best film debut by famous actors and actresses and not necessarily their film debut because a lot of people their debut is some small part in you know some 
tiny film, but like their first sort of feature film leading world debut. One of the uh, names that I'll be throwing out there is Natalie Portman in Leon the Professional, which I know we both enjoyed. I haven't seen it in quite a while, but I remember when I watched it, I was just like, wow, this is incredible. Um, Whether it's, uh, I can't remember the main actor's um, name. I want to say Jean something. Jean um, Renault, Jean Renault. Yes, him. Mm-hmm. Whether it was Natalie Portman, who was like I think twelve or something. Gary Oldman. Yeah, Oldman. Gary, yeah, Gary Oldman, Oldman is was fantastic. Like, brilliant. All the actors mm-hmm. were great. The story was great. The action was great. I I saw it in um, maybe February in four K, and I was just like, how have I not seen this film before? You know, um, I'd heard of it. I seen clips of Gary Oldman, but watching it, it's sort of yeah, it was just it was absolutely brilliant. And I think I watched it again the next night because I was just so impressed, you know, with it. And again, and credit to Natalie Portman, as I will expound on next week with Christian, like, I can't, you know, I know she played a 12-year-old in a film. I don't know how old she was actually at the time. Look, 1994 was released. She's born in 1981. So if it was filmed in, say, the year before, yeah, she would have been 12 or 13 at the time anyway. Um, To play that role, first of all, and then to do it so well, I took drama classes when I was younger, and I don't think I was ever as good at twelve years old as Natalie Portman was. <laughs> well, funny shows that she's she's just a natural. She's just a natural. You're saying I wasn't? How rude! <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> You've got a lot to prove. You still got still got time. <laughs> um, and I was going to talk about. I don't know if we have time. Um. I was going to talk a bit about Charlie Chaplin. Again, who I've seen no films of, shamefully. Yes, because, again, I, I'd i seen clips of him when I was younger. Um, my grandparents had some Laurel and Hardy films, which are of a similar you know style to Chaplin. But I decided to properly, you know, dive into his, his, you know, his major films. Yeah, I've just been absolutely blown away. Like, like the comedy is perfect. He mixes comedy with melodrama so perfectly that you can be, you know, feeling emotional one one scene and then you're just laughing the next. And it keeps that, you know, energy up through the through all of his films. City Lights from 1931 is, you know, it's regularly on the top 100 lists or whatever, but it's just a perfect example of that. Like the story is so emotional, but some of the comedy is some just Chaplin at his best. Would you say that's the best film you've seen of his? I would say I like The Great Dictator more. Mm. His um, satire on Hitler and the Nazi party, which is I just cracked me up so much, honestly. I have seen the speech from that, like the one of the like the famous speech he gives. Yes, the famous speech is is at the end, but a lot of people see that and they don't realize the whole film is just funny as a whole. Um, and it delves into some quite serious issues, uh, you know, the treatment of the Jews, uh, the whole idea of of Hitler and his, his plan. Um, Chaplin himself said that he wouldn't have made it had he known the full extent of what was happening at the time with regards to the Holocaust. He made it in 1940 and he didn't know what was happening. His films got not I wouldn't say worse, but after night after the Great Dictator, 
Um, he sort of didn't make that many films, and then he got kicked out of America because he had had alleged um, um, like socialist communist sympathies. So he got he kind of got booted out. Um, went to live in Switzerland and made all his films in Europe. You know, I'll say again, he imbued a lot of social commentary into his films. Um, he did one called The Circus, where it's quite clear he's critiquing circus owners and, you know, animal trainers and all of that. Um, you know, it's his social commentary. He weaves it really, really cleverly into his films. So, you know, he's being funny, but he's got something to say at the same time. And I'd say he also, I mean, I don't know enough about him to know if this is true, but I would think that he... I don't want to go so far as to say he invented slapstick, but I certainly think he would have popularised it. Yeah, well, he he was the first sort of international movie star. Um, there were stars in Germany, France, England who were known in their countries, but Chaplin and his little and his you know Trump character, um, they he was you know the first star that people would have recognised internationally, um, and that's what kind of set him apart as one of the first, you know, massive movie stars. And that's what makes him so interesting to me. Um, his The type of comedy he did, the sort of slapstick vaudeville type, was popular. Um, Buster Keaton is another famous one. Um, I've been watching him too. So he was sort of Chaplin's rival, in a sense. <laughs> um, but yeah, Chaplin was more successful internationally, de- definitely. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in for our first ever episode. As mentioned, I'll be back next week with Christian and George will be back in two weeks. If you liked the podcast, feel free to give us the rating and we'll see you next week. Yeah, see you next week, guys.